a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Have you completely dedicated every part of yourself to? And I said, well, what's the answer? And she says, that's the trouble. The answer is always no. I said, well, let's ask the question a different way. Has Jesus given everything for you? Has he dedicated his whole life to you? Has he invited you into his heart? And the answer to that is a glorious and gracious and conscious, freeing, comforting yes. Uh, only then we, we hear the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth, uh, was born of a Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life uh, in our place, and died the death that we deserved, took on the full wrath of God. All that was done for us so that we could be called righteous and holy in the eyes of God. That's not going to help with the who wants to date a seminarian hotline right there. <laughs> and welcome to another edition of Table Talk Radio. Back uh, for more punishment. Uh, that's that's right. And uh, I'm still getting used to that new theme music that we got going on. Yeah, it gets me pumped up. <laughs> what, what if we got our voiceover guy to do something like this? Uh, table Talk, get ready for Table Talk Radio. The agony continues. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all of our listeners are thinking anyway. Might as well our voicemail, our voiceover guy do it. All right, we have a great show in store for you. Uh, we're starting off with name that theologian, yeah, and then uh, we're continuing this discussion on Lutheran evangelism. A while ago, we played this game, MythBusters, testing the myth: um, Lutherans, uh, Lutherans don't evangelize, and that myth was busted. busted. We're going to continue talking about Lutheran evangelism in this show. And last but not least, we are playing a new apologetics game. Uh, what was that special name you had for it? The Casual Apologetics Conversation Game. <laughs> Kakga. <laughs> but we have a special guest in studio for that. We'll be introducing him later. All right, well, it's time for our theological buzzwords, and this is where we uh, introduce uh, theological terms, and the other uh, host has to, inter- has to use this word in the conversation sometime during the show. And uh, the theological buzzword I have for you, Pastor Wolfmuller, is syncretism. Uh-huh. And uh, this is uh, the practice where um, people of different religions um, pray or, or worship together, and it gives the indication that they are all uh, worshiping the same God. Um, so that's syncretism with uh, many religions worshiping together. Right, and my theological buzzword for you is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Uh, which is, uh, do you want to actually explain what it is? It's actually the the, the study of how we read uh, and study a text, and especially the biblical text. Uh, so there's a number, there's a different approaches to the to the scriptures, and we call those different hermeneutical approaches. Uh, so hermeneutics. All right. Well, that, those are our theological buzzwords. We'll try and get those in during the show. And now it's time for a name that theologian. The way this game works is uh, each of us have. Uh, a couple different theologians and three quotations from each theologian and we'll read the quotations and then try to sort out who in the world uh, the theologian is and and guess and and get monstrous points when we guess it right uh, now this is a discernment game it, to t- it really it's a it's a game that teaches us how to listen so we're as as we're listening to each other's quotations we're going to be pointing out the different 
um, kind of theological nuances that we hear. And, and as you're listening and playing along with us, you can listen for that too and, and, and play along at home, gather around the children, get out your Table Talk Radio home game, uh, and, uh, and get ready for Name That Theologian. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here's your first entry for Name That Theologian. It is a pity that I led such an evil life, but I will not despair because my evil life or boast because of the good I have done. You must not go to the ex- extremes, either on the right or on the left. It is far beyond. Uh, it is far better to hold to the middle of the ground and say, "There stands one who says that his flesh and uh, is the food for our souls. I shall let him rule." Whoa. Okay. You want to give me a hint on what it's from? Is this like from a sermon or a journal or? A... Um, I don't know that I want to give you a hint. Okay. Uh, so go with the middle. It's odd that the one who how, read that last sentence again. It says we got to stick with the one who said my f- flesh is food for your soul. Yeah. There stands one who says that his flesh is the food for our souls. I shall let him rule. So that's Jesus. Uh, his flesh food for our soul. That would be the discussion that the Lord Jesus has in John chapter six, where he says. Uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Um, I, my flesh is for the life of the world. And so it's a reference to John 6 in the conversation. The odd thing about this quotation is that it says that that's the middle road. we got to stick with the middle road, which is John 6. Uh, and trust. So faith in Jesus is put forth as the middle road, not despairing of our sin uh, or being too overconfident, something like that. So I've, I, I can't get a beat on this yet, um, so I'll need some more quotations. Okay, well, you have two more. Here's your second. When it is a manner of honoring parents or abstaining from murder and theft, then the law must be consulted. Such things, to be sure, loom big before the world, but before God they count for nothing. Our adversaries, however, have reversed the order and promoted the unimportant to the highest rank, making it the chief part and foundation to refrain from stealing, to be obedient to parents, to remain chaste, all these glitters and glistens before their eyes, and they consider this of primary importance. But the flesh and blood of Christ and faith, they count for nothing. You must reverse the order once more and let faith be the roast that is the best part of the Christian life and learn how death, sin, devil, and hell can be resisted thereby. Ooh. Very interesting. Okay, uh, so you have this discussion of the adversaries, and he's laying out two theological camps. Uh, so the one, he, uh, the, the author says, makes the law everything. Um, the, the law, honor your father and mother, do not commit adultery, do not kill. This becomes the main thing, uh, while before God they're nothing. And so our, the adversaries make that the main thing and make faith into nothing. And this, whoever writes this says it should be the opposite. Faith should be everything, um, and the law should be nothing. Now this is reflective of a lot of Luther's writings in, uh, say, that his commentary on Galatians, where he says the law has no place in the Christian life, and, and this sort of thing. And uh, Luther's language of the roast, the faith in Christ and the flesh of Jesus being the roast, the main thing, uh, that's kind of Luther language. But still, this strikes me as kind of Luther-esque. Someone, someone trying to copy Luther, but not exactly hitting it spot on, but I can't exactly tell you why, so I need one more quotation. 
All right. Well, here it is. And if you actually have eternal life, why then are you so stupid to insist on earning it? After all, you are baptized, you have received the Lord's Supper, and you, you do have eternal life. Are you then not mad and foolish to try the devil's name, uh, try in the devil's name to attain salvation through your works? Here Christ says to you, You already have eternal life through my flesh and blood, which I, ha- which I gave you. And now you say, No, I want to enter a monastic order, or do other good works, or thus merit everlasting life. If that is where I am seeking eternal life, there is a reliable indication that you do not yet have it. For if I had it, I would not be seeking it. As long as someone still goes in quest for it, he is not convinced in his heart that it is Christ's flesh, that it that is his nourishment. He denies his baptism, blasphemes and dishonors Christ and his gospel. He's an apostate Christian, a heathen, and a Turk at heart. Hmm. I think this, by the way, I'm going to guess what genre it is. I'm going to guess this is a sermon on John chapter 6. How's that? Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I think with this, I mean, with this whole discussion of, you know, look, you can't earn it by your own good works. And then the example that the author gives of going and earning it by a good work is going back into monasticism. Uh, this, I think, is going to put this as a, certainly as a early reformer. I was, just because of the language, I was tempted to think that this might be someone like an antinomian uh, Lutheran, like Agricola or someone like that. But I think uh, from that last quotation, it kind of rounded things out for me. Don't deny your baptism. Trust in the faith of Christ. Uh, so I'm going to say that this is, um, this is from the reformer himself, Martin Luther. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I thought I had you. You, you were well. The last one was kind of a giveaway with the sacramental language, but I know I was. Uh, I was uh, for some reason I didn't want to say Luther on those first two. I don't know what exactly what it was. Maybe what uh, was it? A sermon on John six? Or yeah, this is, this is from uh, uh, Luther's works, volume twenty three, on John six. Yep. Very so, but good. This is, this is fascinating because uh, you know you hear all the time, you know, especially. Um, People in other churches, they, they accuse other Christians of being nominal Christians, you know, that, uh, okay, they, they go to church, they hear God's word, they receive the sacraments, but they don't have that passion. They don't have that extra, oof, you know, that they're just nominal <laughs> Christians. But Luther here turns it on its head. He says the nominal Christian is one who, though having been baptized and having received the Lord's Supper and hearing the God, God's gifts, he then goes out and seeks other things, that that is not good enough. Uh, Luther says that's a nominal Christian who uh, seeks out other things than, than God's gifts uh, for eternal salvation. Amazing, isn't it? it yeah, really that's is. right. Look, at we have we have nothing more than Jesus, nothing more. And if we think we have anything more than Jesus, uh, then that itself is our idol. Uh, we we have Him alone. Remember how God says it to Abraham? He says, "I am your your shield and your exceedingly great reward." So that. So that when we have Jesus, we we have everything. And when we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. But all those other little things, you know, well, I've got Jesus and I've got my works. Or I've got Jesus and I've got my obedience. Or I've got Jesus and, I, and I've got, you know, uh, all these great spiritual gifts or something. Anytime we begin to add, in, you know, in our to our faith, the things that we trust in, all these other things, then we are departing from Christ. That's right. Well, that's the first theologian down. Um, 200 points for Pastor Brian Wolfman. Congratulations. On the scoreboard first. But don't worry. There's more. Name that theologian right after this commercial break. 
And uh, Pastor Wolfmuller is going to give me a theologian, and I'm going to get 200 points as well. Flounder, you're going to flounder around. <laughs> That's my guess. Call our listener, our, uh, what do we call that? The um, listener. Who wants to date a vicar? <laughs> uh, the listener response line, 866-851-5523 is the number. We'll be right back for more Table Talk Radio and Name That Theologian. Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. You're listening to Table Talk Radio, Serious Theology, Seriously Bad Hosts. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, 200 points to zero, but don't worry everyone. It's now my turn to play <laughs> Name That Thief. <laughs> People were, were worried that I was down 200 points. <laughs> Jesus, remember the words of Jesus. Do not worry about the next segment of the show. <laughs> this segment has enough worries of its own. <laughs> That's probably true. Okay, <laughs> well, give, me a, give me another theologian for Name That Theologian. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here it comes. Mercy is about who God is and who we are in Christ. To deny mercy is more than mere transgression of particular laws. Denying mercy is a denial of who God is in Christ, a denial of the Holy Trinity. And the Catholic faith is this. We worship one God and Trinity, and Trinity and unity. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Hmm. Quotation number one. Okay, so this person is talking about denying mercy. Now, here we have the tidbit about the Catholic faith, although... uh, Outside of its context, I'm not sure if it's talking about the Roman Catholic faith or the Catholic faith universal. Um, I'll give you a hint on that. That is the quotation from the Athanasian Creed. Okay, so that's probably talking about the the Catholic um, faith universal. Okay, so give me another one. Okay. In Christ, compassion means action because of who he is. In Christ... God acted and acts for the temporal and eternal blessing of the world. When we are in Christ, we can do nothing other than act for the well-being of others. Okay, so this is talking a lot about mercy and compassion and how um, those who are Christians will have compassion on others. Um, True stuff, I think. I just don't, can't, I don't have any kind of a, inclination of what theologian this might be to the theological center here who has at their theological center this discussion of mercy and compassion i think i'll give you a longer quotation on the third one and that should uh, push you over the top okay (laughs) ready ready by nature every person knows something of god's law romans 2 and each person knows just enough to think he can justify himself however justification and the peace it brings is a gift God strikes down every attempt at self-justification with a damning and universal, no, it's not enough, all are condemned. The New Testament puts forth as an unavoidable, universal, and unalterable truth. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3. Repeatedly, the New Testament blankets all with condemnation under the law of God. None is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, Galatians 3. In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15. As Lutherans we confess, our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God. 
by their own strength, merits, or works. Though every attempt at self-justification before God is futile and damning, there is justification. There is a declaration and counting of a person as righteous under eternal blessedness. It's by God's act, not ours. As the Lutheran confessions declare, people are freely justified for Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. Um, is this a contemporary theologian? Um, uh, for I'll give you that answer for 10 points if you get it right. <laughs> is this like buying a vowel or what? I'll buy a hint? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I like that new rule. <laughs> so you want to spend 10 points to buy a hint? All right. The answer is yes, it is a contemporary theologian. Uh, well, someone, obviously a Lutheran, quoting uh, the Lutheran Confessions there. Um, and a contemporary theologian, the, the the one that, and also in that vein, centering on mercy and compassion, the the only person that I think fits the bill that I can think of would be uh, Pastor Matt Harrison, who is the uh, director of uh, LCMS Road Relief and Human Care. That's right. This is from the book Christ Have Mercy: How to Put Your Faith in Action by Matt Harrison. Aha! You nailed it. So one ninety for, for me. One ninety. That's right. <laughs> So <laughs> this book, uh, we were giving away this book here uh, to for the listener participation games uh, a while back. Do we have uh, any more? Fantastic of this? little piece. Uh, I do have one. I'm I'm reading it from it right here. So <laughs> this isn't your uh, personal library copy, then. Uh, it must be. I, uh, <laughs> but if you want, I think I, <laughs> if you want if you pastor's want a, uh, library edition, <laughs> you can win our next uh, listener participation game. This is it's a it's a fantastic piece of work, though. Uh, because it shows uh, something. You know what the Lutherans are always accused of is, is from the very, very beginning is forbidden, forbidding good works. We are falsely accused of forbidding good works. It says over and over in our confessions. We don't, we don't forbid them. We, in fact, show you how to do them, namely by believing in Jesus. Because a good tree produces good fruit. And to be a good tree, you have to have faith uh, in Jesus. You have to be declared righteous by, by his word. And so we have this marvelous this teaching that the Lord calls us to be holy and righteous by the death of Jesus, and then from that flows all sorts of love for God and neighbor. Uh, and and Pastor Harrison puts that forth in this book, uh, in showing the the works of mercy that that the church does throughout the world. Really fantastic book. All the listeners should pick it up. Uh, Concordia Publishing House might have a couple copies laying around that you could buy from them. So, <laughs> uh, Speaking of uh, LCMS Relief and Human Care, they were the ones that sponsored my trip to Madagascar in February. Remember I went to Madagascar? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the reason that, I mean, it's, it's a great deal all around because um, it's great for seminary students to go over to Madagascar and you actually see everything you just described in action in the Malagasy Lutheran Church. Because there you have Christians, uh, Lutheran Christians, who have taken the responsibility to, to care for people through Lutheran hospitals, uh, blind and deaf schools, um, uh, like what, what would be the equivalent of like um, retirement homes here. Uh, I mean, just all, all kinds of – just caring for each other um, because that's what Christians do is they, they care for human beings. And so in, in some ways there's a lot to learn from the Malagasy Lutheran Church for us in America. Yes. Right. Oh. Okay. Well, you <laughs> well said. I'm looking at this book. It has pictures in it, too, you know, so I like that. <laughs> we need to get a picture book for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm ready for more points. Uh, Do we have mean, time for another theologian? Yeah, we have a little bit of time. We'll work it in. 
We'll start it here, and then uh, we'll we might have to bleed over on the other side a little bit. Okay, here's our first quotation. The Lord himself says of his church, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Accordingly, the church in its proper sense, that is, its members, is built on the rock of Christ and his word. But on this only he is built who is built on it by a living faith. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Uh, this uh, on this rock I will build my church. That's Matthew 16. The, the words of our Lord Jesus talking to Peter, and he has the play on words there. Petros is, means rock, and and Peter. So Peter makes this great confession: "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This is given by the Father. Uh, and on this rock I will build my church." Now the Roman Catholic Church interprets that to mean on this Peter, on this, and then subsequently, for some reason, on this Pope, I will build my church. Uh, and that interpretation is certainly not in this quote, so we're going to eliminate any, any sort of Roman Catholic theologian. Uh, the thing that uh, per- perhaps is interesting about this is going to be this discussion of living faith. Uh, that when you when you qualify faith and talk about living faith versus dead faith, this is one of the marks of Pietism. Uh, now it, do- it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, but that's gonna that's got my radar up. Okay, well, so. let's see if it comes through any of the other quotes. Uh, ready for your second one, then? Ready. Okay. Although Holy Scripture attests that all believing Christians are priests, it is at the same time teaches very expressly that in the church there are there um, there is an office to teach, feed, and rule, which Christians, by virtue of their general calling as Christians, do not possess. For thus it is written. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Again, how shall they preach unless they are sent? Or, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Oof. One of the second marks of pietism is this uh, emphasis on the universal priesthood and the kind of de-emphasis then on the external call of the pastor into the office, and that's the opposite of this text. So that puts me off the... That puts me off the um, the Pietist trail. Now we have so we have a discussion of of the church, which is a particular obsession with modern theologians. So I'm gonna I'm gonna think that that this person is fairly recent. Uh, this emphasis of the call um, is also v- something very interesting to note. So those are noted, and I but I need a third. Okay, here is your third, and we'll read it to you, and then we might have to go to a break. Since the congregation or the church of Christ, that is, the communion of believers, has the power of the keys and the priesthood immediately, it is also and it is it also and it alone can entrust the office of the ministry, which publicly administers the office of the keys and all ministerial functions to the congregation, to certain competent persons by electing, calling, and commissioning. So we read that the apostle Matthias was chosen for his high office not merely by the eleven, but by the whole multitude of believers gathered together, about 120 in, in number. Further, we read that the deacons were chosen by the whole multitude. So that's your quote. You get a muse over that. Do you want, well, give, me, give us a little bit of your commentary, then we'll uh, d- get your guess on the other side. Well, these kind of... I don't know, Evan, if these kind of church and ministry discussions happen in other church bodies, but they certainly do in the Lutheran church. Uh, and so I think that's uh, this has got to be uh, some sort of Lutheran theologian, um, as far as I know. Now, if any of you listeners are in other church bodies, 
uh, and uh, before you become Lutheran, if you could find out for me uh, if other ch- if you have these discussions about church and ministry over there, uh, I'd be interesting to know that. But I don't think so. So I'm 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 on the Lutheran track. Uh, I just gotta I think about it a little bit to to come up with a name to guess. All right, well, I might you have a, a few clues. Yeah, you have a few minutes to do that during this break. Uh, meanwhile, all of our listeners are rushing to our website at tabletalkradio.org to post their <laughs> comments about this show on our forum at tabletalkradio.org. We're we'll right back, and we're gonna get Pastor's guest and then talking about Lutheran evangelism right after. You're not easily embarrassed? Tell your friends about Table Talk Radio. And now it's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. When we read through the creeds of the church, we see that it confesses who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the very important words that we uh, confess about God is that God is one. This comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we have the unity of God three times, especially in the Nicene Creed. But listen, there's a surprise when we come to the end. First we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Then the second article, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Also very clear. One God, the Father, one Son. So when we get to the third article, the last part of the Creed, we might expect it to say something like this, and in one Holy Spirit. But it doesn't. Listen to where the oneness is in the third article. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy Christian and apostolic church. There's the unity of the third article. That God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who exist eternally as one, give their unity to us, the church, so that we are one church, one body, one people, with one God, and one faith, and one baptism. We have the unity of the Holy Trinity itself, as Jesus prays, that we might be one as they are one. And how does this happen? When the Lord makes us holy in His Word. When Jesus prayed that we would be one as Him and the Father are one, He also prayed to the Father this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Praise God for having us as one church. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. the congregation or church of Christ, that is, the communion of believers, has the power of the keys and the priesthood immediately, it also and it alone can entrust the office of the ministry, which publicly administers the office of the keys and all ministerial functions to the congregation, to certain competent persons by electing, calling, and commissioning. So we read that the apostle Matthias was chosen for his high office not merely by the eleven, but by the whole multitude of believers gathered together, about 120 in member in number. Furthermore, we read that the deacons were chosen by the whole multitude. That is the third and final quote before Pastor Wolfmuller for his guess on Name That Theologian. Yes, uh, I, I think that what this is talking about, by the way, is the fact that the church possesses the office of the keys, and this is when Jesus says, um, whoever sinned you... Uh, you loose on earth, they're loosed in heaven, and whoever you, you bind, 
sins you bind on earth are bound in heaven. And this is, I mean, perhaps the most important thing from this quote is to just to have this uh, this emphasized. In fact, we'll talk about it when we transition to talk about evangelism here in a few minutes, that the church has an authority given from heaven to forgive sins, and that th- this is precisely and exactly what the gospel is. So when you put men in the in the ministry of the gospel, that's the, we call them pastors, you're putting them there to bring this authoritative word to the Lord's people that and to the world, that sins are forgiven, and that we can be absolutely confident in this. I think this church and ministry discussion, uh, listening to that last quotation again, is going to be from our friend C.F.W. Walther in his uh, in his uh, church and ministry uh, book. That's going to be my guess. <laughs> Very good, <laughs> C.F.W. Walther. All right, it is. you're right, and it's from the church and ministry book. Yeah. All right. Well, it's time for a little. <laughs> I didn't even need to buy a clue. That gives me just oh, a flat four hundred. Not to mention, I didn't even get another theologian. I should. I think I should get an automatic two hundred if I don't get a fair opportunity. You're not even a fair opportunity uh, game show host. Right. <laughs> Good thing the points don't matter. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, now we need to talk about this Lutheran evangelism. You've written this article. What have you entitled this? Um, 14th. Speaking of Walther, man, that guy loved to write theses. You know, old Lutheran style, you write a thesis. The problem with writing a thesis, which is simply a kind of a, a simple theological statement, uh, is that you have to be pretty precise. You, you kind of have to know what you're talking about. So I tried to write up some theses on Lutheran evangelism. They got kind of wordy at 14 of them. Uh, and I think the you can find those. I think they're posted on our Table Talk website. True enough? It might be. It will be by the time this gets to the air. Okay. <laughs> uh, they're also on the Hope Lutheran website, hope-aurora.org, and you can find them there. And uh, But kind of the guts of them are theses 9, 10, and 11, and so uh, we wanted to say a few more words about that. Uh, here's theses 9. Furthermore, the proper distinction between law and gospel is a personal and individual distinction, as Luther taught us. The law is for the proud and puffed up, the gospel for the despairing. This means that evangelism cannot be programmatic or scripted, but that the conversation between the church and the Christian and the unbeliever will include listening and an attempt to discern the condition of the person to apply the proper word of God at the proper time. Okay, so um, by a personal individual distinction, you're simply um, saying that uh, as Christians go out and, and they're interacting with their neighbor, uh, they're going to have opportunities to proclaim God's word, and, and that individual then makes a distinction. Does this person need to hear the law? Or does this person need to hear the gospel? Yeah, that's right. The, the, see, sometimes you need the law, and sometimes you need the gospel. I mean, that's true for all of us, Christian and unbeliever alike. Uh, and so you have to make that discernment. Now, when you're when you're preaching, you can't do it because there's, I mean, as, as well, because there's people. Uh, everyone listening is in a different sort of state. Uh, someone's there despairing and they need to hear the Lord's word of comfort. Someone is there prideful, and they need to hear the Lord's word of law, this sort of thing. But when we're having individual conversations with people, we're able, and I think this is very important for evangelism, we're able to actually listen, and we're as we're listening, we're thinking all along, what word of God does this person need? Are they Are they prideful and puffed up in their sin, and therefore need to hear the law? the Lord's word of condemnation against their sinfulness? Or are they despairing, 
uh, of their sickness and death? Do they know that they, if they were to stand before God, that they would stand under judgment? And then we come with the Lord's word of gospel. But see, I'm afraid, and the reason why I think this is so important, is that I'm afraid that uh, whenever normally people are talking about evangelism and evangelism training and this sort of thing, we, we make it kind of formulaic. First you ask this, and then you say this, and then you th- write this, and then you do this. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you just read my next question. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, forget I never said that. What's your next well, question? Well, I was just going to say uh, an example that came up in class one time with one of my instructors. Uh, he said, okay, let, suppose someone comes into your office you know, as a pastor, and this lady said, my husband just left me, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so broken by this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then you you come back and say, well, you really need to pray about this. Was that the right application of law and, and gospel? Uh, it's it's never wrong to encourage people to pray, but I've uh, found that whenever people are struggling with different things, that they don't even need to hear it. I mean, the school of trouble teaches us to pray. But what the person really needs, I mean, when someone's despairing, is not... Uh, is not the Lord's law, but rather the comfort of the gospel. Uh, look, your um, your husband might be unfaithful, but your Jesus never is. He's faithful unto death uh, for you and for your salvation. And so, you know, there there could be some practical wisdom to give there, but especially the gospel needs to come forth. Okay. Well, we should move on to your tenth thesis here. It says, "Well, this is a okay. Go ahead. Oh yeah, go ahead." You got it. You got it. Okay. I'm ready for you. I want to see if you can read this one. <laughs> <laughs> Even furthermore, this means that evangelism training will not will be nothing more than con- continued. <laughs> will be nothing more than continued study and meditation on the proper distinction between the law and gospel. Right now, th- this there's something I hope fan- s- fantastically simple and freeing here in that. When we're talking about, quote, evangelism training, we're really talking about continuing to study the Lord's word and see how the prophets and the apostles and our Lord Jesus himself applies law and gospel uh, to the to the church and to the unbeliever and to the world. Um, because that's precisely then what we're to do as well. This is not some sort of fancy technique or, or uh, any sort. There's not like a set of right words. This is not magic when we talk about evangelism, but simply knowing all the way down uh, into our own hearts, knowing that that God loves us in Christ and that He's forgiven our sins, even though He shouldn't have. Right. Okay. Well, we have about uh, three minutes left to do the the eleventh one here. Uh, and this is the meat and potatoes. Uh, the word of God, being the means of the Holy Spirit in creating faith in the heart of sinful man, is effective. That was a buzzword a couple of weeks ago. The effective word of God. Oh, speaking of buzzwords. Yeah, I was like, what's uh, mine? <laughs> yours is hermeneutics, mine is syncretism. Oof, how in the world are we going to talk about that? It is a false and dangerous, te- back to the theses here, it is the false and dangerous tendency to treat the word of God as mere information that has only has benefit when accepted and acted upon, as in the case with American evangelicalism. Most people see the scriptures just like any other word, that it's just kind of information, and it, and it only has benefit when we act upon it. But this is not the case. God's word is effective. It creates faith. Um, 
That was a comment. I'm back to the theses. The gospel is the authoritative declaration of sins forgiven. In other words, the absolution. In fact, the central act of evangelism is not asking the unbeliever to come to Jesus. That's what we normally get. But it's not that. But rather, it is in the name of Jesus forgiving their sins. Evangelism is the church speaking the absolution to the world. So that because the church has the has the office of the keys, this authority given by Jesus to forgive sins, this is what evangelism is. Is the church saying to the world, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. By his death on the cross, by his blood shed for you, your sins are forgiven. So that evangelism is making this authoritative uh, absolution and declaration uh, to the world. I you remember when we interviewed uh, Dr. Nestigan, James Nestigan. Yes. Uh, yes when yes. he was speaking at the seminary, he he told us a story about how um, you know he was sitting on an airplane and he was talking to the guy next to him, and he said, by the way, he doesn't wear his collar on the planes anymore because when whenever there's turbulence, everybody rushes to him. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but he you know he's talking to the guy next to him and he finds out he's a pastor, and this guy just tells him his whole life story, and and he comes to realize this guy's really doing a confession of sins you know informally he's confessing all of his sins and so uh, dr neskin stands up and says um uh, in the said and by the command of my lord and savior jesus christ i forgive you all your sins and the guy was just like in a, a deer in headlights you know like what what is this but then he would call him every so often and, and need to hear that word of forgiveness again now dr neskin spoke by his office um, but but christians uh, pronounce the, the the objective fact of, of christ's forgiveness by his work on the cross um, just as in a similar way Dr. Neskin did. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and that's really it, is that we come with a word of authority, not just with a, uh, not with a word of fact, but with a word of promise, you see? Right, and yeah. the, and, and so the, this word of promise is what gives life to the world, that, that God now no longer frowns, but smiles on us in spite of our sinfulness. Well, wonderful. That's great. Well, do you want to tell us about this game coming up? Uh, yes, this is the Casual Apologetics Conversation Game, affectionately known as CACG. We've got to come up with a little better abbreviation. But I think this is the way we're going to go. We're going to bring on um, uh, we're going to bring on our guest, and we're going to uh, start a few conversations, and then we're going to see how it would sketch out. So we uh, we're going to just give a, a phrase of something someone might say, and then uh, and then let our guest go with how he might approach the further conversation, what what the theology is behind the person, and how we not, might bring the Lord's word to bear on it. All right. Well, that's right after this commercial break. Don't go away. Crazy. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, and thank you for joining us for this uh, apologetics game that we're trying out here. And our special <laughs> casual apologetics conversation game. I don't like that name. We need to think of something better. But uh, our special guest for this is uh, Pastor Dave Nairn. He's pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Norman, Oklahoma, and my vicarage supervisor. So thank you for joining us on Table Talk Radio. I'm glad to be here. All right. So how this works is that we're going to give you kind of a a situation, a a conversation that you might be having with someone. If you could just kind of identify maybe what theology or worldview they're coming from, and then just kind of approach how you would maybe start a conversation 
addressing All this. All right. All right. I love worldviews. Okay. So the first one is you're, you're sitting in one of the, the fine coffee shops here in Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, you see uh, the person next to you as, you as you're sipping your caramel macchiato. Um, <laughs> I like to order the, the burn your mouth a lot of. <laughs> but you, you see him reading his Bible. And so you ask, hey, that's great that you're reading your Bible. What are you reading? And, and he says, oh, I'm, I'm reading the, the Gospel of John. Here it says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. What do you think? Well, you're talking to Jehovah Witness. Aha. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, they have their own translation of the Bible, and they often will use it if they bang on your door. And they're trying to get you to th- – they're supposedly – they have their own translation of the Bible, and they're supposedly also accept the King James Version. But they'll often read from that to unsuspecting people. And um, I believe that's right. That would be Jehovah Witness. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses believe Jehovah is God. Jesus is not. Um, although, you know, the Mormons, we all can be gods too. You know, the Mormons teach that uh, as – God, as Jesus is now, he once was a man, and we can become gods. So I would say either a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, read that, and he was a god. He was a god, yeah. right. Yeah, right. So, yeah, you're right. That, that's a Jehovah's <laughs> Witness. And, and they're kind of the, the original uh, Arians that, that they believe that, that Jesus, Jesus was the, the first creation of God. So. Jehovah Witnesses um, can often be found... Uh, there, my experience has been in Colorado. I had Jehovah Witness Church right next door to my church, and it's almost completely prescripted memorizing of cards. And that's one of the first ones they'll always mention. Mm-hmm. Is that from John one? Okay, very good. Uh, do we award uh, Pastor Aaron's points? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, okay. He's got so far a hundred and ninety-one for that answer. <laughs> oh, what do you know? One above me. <laughs> one above you. <laughs> I think Amazing. you guys you guys wanted to really be football players, didn't you? You wanted to rack up points. <laughs> you would fit in good in Norman, Oklahoma, Boomer Sooners. <laughs> That's true. Nice. Okay, Pastor Wolfner, do you have one for Pastor Nerens? Sure. Okay. Here's the, here's the conversation. You're walking down the street, and and there's a uh, art gallery there. So you uh, so you turn and look in the window, and there's standing next to a person, and they're looking at a huge photograph of the Grand Canyon, and you comment. You say, "Boy, that's beautiful." And they respond with something like this. Oh, I know. It's so wonderful. Can you imagine being there when this uh, first started to take place? Millions and millions of years ago, before there was people around to mess things up. Well, you know, that's obviously the the most uh, common worldview today of the evolutionary view of life. And the thing is, evolutionary view of life, people don't realize it isn't just a matter of looking at the Grand Canyon, but the whole evolutionary view of life affects who who are human beings. And so you would have to begin a discussion with that person about what is their evidence for evolution, what is the uh, effect that the evolutionary worldview has on a person's whole view of life. Not just looking at the Grand Canyon, so that's actually evolutionary worldview. Pastor, for, for maybe for the listeners that that didn't catch it, what was the tip off that that was an evolutionary worldview, and uh, why why would that be wrong? Okay, very good because of the idea that uh, millions and millions of years by which it took to develop before there were human beings. So the idea that there were no human beings around, that human beings came along at some unspecified time later. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and you mentioned, and this is very uh, intriguing, and I think a great point that that evolutionary understanding of the world affects how we view ourselves. It's not just a it's not just a thing about well, this is what happened a long, long time ago. This is a matter of um, uh, uh, of even understanding the world today. But but what? How does it affect a person's worldview? I mean, a view of evolution. How does it affect the way they think about themselves and their neighbor uh, and society? And that really is the modern dilemma of man today because uh, this is one of my favorite topics, topics is how the evolutionary worldview affects everything. It affects science, music, the arts, philosophy, poetry, everything. And so I always tell people, you know, when you go into an art museum, after you've looked at the Rembrandt and you walk into the room and there's this um, thing hanging on the wall, and that person is most likely reflecting an evolutionary worldview. Everything is random. Uh, there's no meaning to life, so therefore I'm going to uh, throw a splat of paint on a canvas, and there's no more meaning to that than a Rembrandt because it's all by chance. And then uh, you, we have what we're faced today is that um, if, if uh, through, through the theory of, of evolution that uh, we come about through random chance and and etc um that that humans don't find their value in just their fact of human life um, but rather it's in their in their value their ability to to help the world around them and so then uh, the value of life is, is low for babies who don't have an ability to contribute or even the elderly who don't have a ability definitely to contribute. eugenics all the way mm-hmm you know, Paul said in Romans 1, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature had been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And that complicates our apologetic work today because you have to begin with natural law, and that's not even a given anymore. Saying that the created world shows there's a God, you have to defend that today. But with the intelligent design, which isn't per se a Christian movement, there's a whole uh, rebirth of looking at natural law again, or an interest in looking at natural law, I think, which is great. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, I've, I, have a, I have one more. I don't, I don't know how many Pastor Wolfman has, but I have one more. I was thinking on this last one, just to make a, another comment, sure. a, a way into the conversation might be something like this. When someone says, oh, how would it have been to see it millions of years ago before there was people to mess it up? Uh, you have a couple of ins for the conversation, too. You could say, oh, before people, uh, who would it have been beautiful for? Or that would have been so terrible because uh, because the world wouldn't have been beautiful for anybody. Uh, to try to to try to try bridge the conversation over to the fact that God created the world for uh, people. And then, But here's maybe a second thing, uh, a way into the conversation, to say something like this. Oh, you think that human beings messed up the world. Well, you know, the Bible actually says the same thing. Uh, it exactly. tells the story of Adam and Eve uh, and the eating of the fruit. And so there might be a way into the conversation with original sin, uh, you, you know, this kind of radical environmentalism that says that human beings are destroying the world. Uh, w- I think we have an in in the conversation when we can go to the Garden of, uh, of Eden and, uh, and find common ground in the fall of humanity. Very good. Okay. Well, the the last one I have for you. I don't, I don't, if we have more time, Pastor Wolf, I'll give you another one. But uh, okay, so you're you're on the airplane again, and uh, you sit next to the uh, college kid next to you, and, and uh, he finds out you're a pastor, and, and he this college kid says, "Well, uh, I, I used to be a Christian, but my my 
college professor talked to me about how the Bible is just a collaboration of a bunch of different scripts that uh, you know people were changing at their own will. Uh, that we really can't trust the Bible. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, I've actually actually been asked that question many times in a campus environment, and what the whole approach you you take in a situation like that is, you know, I'm not going to ex- expect you up front to accept that the Bible is the Word of God. But have you actually ever read it? The evidence um, speaks for itself. The biblical manuscripts are the best manuscripts preserved in ancient history. And it's simply a false statement to say that the manuscripts for the Scripture can't be trusted because this is one of the great uh, uh, things that Josh McDowell did with his two books, Evidence that Man's a Verdict and More Evidence that Man's a Verdict, showing that if you're going to question the documents of the Old and New Testament, then you're going to have to question all of the documents of antiquity. So where you begin with is people make those statements a lot of times haven't actually read a Bible. That's just something they've heard. And so you lay out the evidence when you have the opportunity for the integrity of the manuscripts of the Old and New Testament and uh, you kind of take it from there. All right. Pastor, we have um, about a minute. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you give us one more, and we'll, we'll finish up here. All right. I, uh, <clears throat> we, my wife and I went to the movies last night, and we were driving home, and uh, uh, we went past this car that had the, a bumper sticker, and it said, so here's a little bumper sticker theology. It says, uh, I'm pagan, and I vote. <laughs> Oof. All right. I'm pagan, and I vote. You have your hands full with this one. Do you, do you, uh, how you would start a conversation with this person? I'm trying to figure out the organization they're part of. <laughs> I'm pagan and I vote. I'm paganos and I vote. <laughs> well, that's similar to these bumper stickers you'll see where they'll have the Christian symbol of the fish, but they'll be, have Darwin in it. Mm-hmm. And my favorite one is where they've got a fish with Darwin in it, and there's a bigger fish with a cross in it eating the Darwin fish. Right. <laughs> um, so I'm pagan and I vote. Hmm. Well, the whole um environmental movement at its root is indeed almost always the radical environmentalism is anti God. It's actually trying to get rid of God. Uh, thus they are proud of being a pagan and um that worldview then is a challenge to what people would think is the Judeo-Christian worldview. People say the United States is that, although it's mostly not. And I think they're just making a statement: "I am not that." Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of this reaction to "In God We Trust," and but I'm so I'm a pagan, so I'm gonna vote anyway. Well, I'm afraid that's all the, the time we have. Woohoo! Um, that's a, another show of it, uh, Table Talk Radio right there. So thank you all for listening to. Thank you, Pastor Narens, for joining us for Table Talk Radio. Really appreciate it. You guys do a good job. All right, thank you. And thank you for listening to Table Talk Radio, where the points are like half the body parts of Hollywood. Think. <laughs> You've been listening to Table Talk Radio. The views expressed on this show are that of the hosts and do not reflect the views or opinions of this station. We would like to answer your questions concerning theology, the scriptures, or anything else. Send your questions to question at tabletalkradio.org 
or leave us a voicemail message. 866-851-5523. Be sure to check out our website, tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next time to Table Talk Radio.